So the Apostle Paul uh, says in, in Ephesians that one of the signs, if we want to know if we're filled in the Holy Spirit, it's actually the word Paul uses, filled in the Spirit, if you want to know that you are, one of the signs of that is that we submit, that we subject ourselves. That's, that's a work that we do. We subject ourselves to the God-ordained authorities in our lives. So being filled in the Spirit sounds like such a lofty and wonderful ideal, I would think, for us as Christians. But then when we begin to define what being filled in the Spirit means and what it looks like, when we say that it means subjecting ourselves to the God-ordained authorities in our lives, that's when we begin to realize that our sin wars against the Spirit. Our flesh wars against the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled in the Spirit, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So subjection to God-ordained authorities in our lives is an expression of our being subject to Christ. Um, And when we keep that in mind, it can make that not only palatable, but beautiful. Um, And it's a sign of being filled in the Spirit that we're new creations in Christ. Because who can truly subject themselves except for those who are new creations in Jesus? that's, That's the beauty of it. Paul goes on then to exhort specific people to be subject to specific authorities. So first, and we may, we may come to this in the next two weeks possibly, we'll see, but he speaks to the Christian wives and calls them to submit to their husbands. Then he turns to the Christian children and calls them to obey and to honor their parents. Then he addresses the Christian slaves and calls them to obey their masters. But always, whenever Paul is done Exhorting those who are called to submit, he exhorts those to whom God has entrusted positions of authority. So if Christian wives are to subject themselves to their husband, then what is the calling of Christian husbands? It is, it is to use their headship, it is to use their authority as the context, as the world in which they love their wives in the same manner as Christ loved his church and loves his church. So we may come to this to talk about it maybe more at length later, but it's the husband's headship that enables him to love his wife in this specific and this unique way. The husband loves his wife in a way that the wife cannot love her husband. It's a unique kind of love that depends for its existence upon headship. If Christian slaves are to be obedient to those who are their masters, then Christian masters have to remember that both their master and their slave's master is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So that, that, that breaks out like this. When the slave stands before his master, they're not equal. You know, we say all men are created equal, absolutely, but at another level... We're not all created equal at another level, at a certain level, due to the roles in which God has placed us and the spheres into which we have been, at many times, born. So now, in this case, you're not born a slave, or some are, but that's not the nature of us from birth. But standing before his master, the slave and the master are not equals in terms of position and role. But standing before God, what happens? They're both equals now. 
Because they're both slaves of God. The master and his slave are both slaves of God. So if Christian children then, we've heard that both sides of the husbands, wives, masters, slaves, if Christian children are to obey and honor their parents, then what about Christian parents? So after speaking specifically to the children in verses 1 to 3, and again, he, 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 taught, he just looked the children in the eyes and talked to them, and everyone else went away, and Paul the Apostle just, just spoke to the children, to the sons and daughters in the room. Now he turns from the children, and it begins in verse 4 of chapter 6. And fathers. So, why does Paul say, and fathers? Because it's very specific. I want to be clear, Paul is not addressing the mothers. I also will be clear that everything Paul is about to say to the fathers applies to the mothers. He's not like saying mothers don't need to hear this. But there's, there's a unique reason that certainly Paul addresses the fathers. Now, we know that's specific, that's intentional, because he said in verse 1, children obey your parents. So you'd almost expect him to say, and parents, now let me follow with this instruction. He says in verse 2, uh, honor your father and mother. So he could have also said, and fathers and mothers... Now, let me give you this instruction. He doesn't say fathers and mothers. He doesn't say parents. He says, and fathers. So everything that Paul is about to say in this verse, as I just said, will apply to mothers. I want to just briefly read this passage from 1 Timothy. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children. And this is in a further context that we're not looking at now. But, and then he says, and I want these women as wives and, and mothers to rule their household, the household, or direct their ho- the household, or manage the household. Um, some translations say, keep house. And I, I think that's, that's nothing wrong with that in itself. But in our culture, I'm not sure that that really communicates and conveys what Paul was actually saying. The Greek word is oika, which is the word for house or household, despoteo, or despotes, which you can imagine the, our English word is a despot. Certainly, Paul is not commanding the, the mothers to be despots in the home. But it does bring us back to the principle of the mother as a manager of the household, as, as a directing the household, as even in a sense ruling the household in her sphere. So again, Paul's words apply to the mothers, and I'm going to bring the mothers in as we go through this. But fathers, it is to the Christian fathers that Paul speaks because they carry the ultimate weight in your handout of authority in the home. Again, why does Paul go to the fathers? Because they carry the weight, the ultimate weight of authority in the home. And so it's the Christian fathers who are ultimately and finally accountable, accountable for the health and the well-being of their household. That doesn't mean that, we're, that we can guarantee that it will always be in perfect health, but it does mean that the buck stops here, that we are accountable for the situation of our household, and specifically for the Christian training of our children. Authority is from God. It, there is no authority except from God. 
Therefore, the higher the authority that is given, the greater the weight of responsibility and accountability. Fathers, the authority that we've been given in the home is directly proportional to the weight of responsibility and accountability that we bear. I don't think we ought to go out pursuing authority or wishing we had it if it's not been assigned to us. That's a very foolish thing, I think. Because all you're asking for is stricter judgment and higher accountability. And this is not to make everyone else feel better about the fact that we have the authority. No, this is, this is for our sake to, to humble us, to cause us to feel the responsibility that, is, that, that we have. And I, I would suggest, if we have not yet ever felt overwhelmed by this, we, we should, apart from God's grace. So I would say to the wives and children, as I said last week, the message to the children was not just for them, it was for others to hear. Um, and so this message for the fathers, this word from Paul to the fathers, is, is for all of us. Grandparents, how, what are the ways that you can just um, take this into account as you, as you watch your own children, parent their children, or, or wives and, and children? Um, how might this encourage you to be in Subjection, which is your calling. Your calling is to be in subjection at different levels. Certainly not wives and children are the same. But, but both to be in subjection. As you meditate and reflect on this calling of, of the father and the husband, how might this encourage you in, in your calling? Young men, uh, maybe you're, all, you're still called to be in submission, but, but how are you being equipped you might think as you listen to this, how am I being equipped to bear myself this weight of responsibility and accountability as the head of a future household? Since the authority of the husband or the father in the home is the highest authority in the home, the responsibility and accountability he bears is the highest. This is why. And, and I, just, I just want to say again, this is... These are realities here, whether it's the fathers and their responsibility, or the mothers, or the children, or the wives, or the husbands. So often I see Christians who say, well, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That may be the role, but we've found a way around it. Or we've excused it in our mind. Every single one of us, I'm not talking to one or the other. But brothers and sisters, we have the spirit within us. We are new creations. We are capable, not just of grudgingly submitting ourselves to this, but of embracing it and of seeing the goodness of God's ways and of trusting him in the process. So, it's because of this then that that Paul, after telling the children to obey their parents, to honor their father and mother, he now turns specifically to you and to me as fathers and fathers. Now, one of the most important ways, I want to say this too, that a father sees to the upbringing of his children, obviously since the mother directs and manages the household in her own sphere, how, what better way can a father see to the well-being of his home than by loving his wife? And by using 
the headship and authority in the marriage relationship that he's been given as a means of empowering and enabling his wife to be a faithful mother, to be managing and directing the household well. But of course, that's not all. Paul writes, And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Uh, Certainly, each week, there's a sense in which I always kind of feel like, I wish I could just sit out there and hear it. Certainly, this is a week when I, I I really want you to know I'm sitting out there and hearing it with you. So why does Paul say this? Do not provoke your children to anger. It it might sound a little random. It might sound a little like, well, where did he come up with that? (laughs) But at the end of the day, if you think about it, we realize not so. It's not this that Paul had met one or two Christian fathers who had been doing this, and he thought, I don't know, in case anyone else is doing that, maybe I better give him this instruction. No, he says this because this is exactly what all fathers and all mothers are prone to do. The danger of provoking our children to anger is directly proportional to the position of authority that we've been given in the home. So let me put it this way. We could ask ourselves, isn't it just as easy for a child to provoke his father to anger? How many of us as fathers would say at some, at some day, at some time, well, my, ch- my, that, my child provoked me to anger. And we might even think, in fact, it, doesn't that maybe happen more often? Now the child would say, no, it's the other way around, right, if we're going to get into that. The answer is, in fact, no. No, at a basic level, my children have never, ever, ever once provoked me to anger, ever. They have never provoked me to anger. Neither have yours. In a relationship of authority and submission, it is only the one in authority who can ever be held accountable for provoking to anger. You think about that. I'm not saying that what the child did that maybe I responded to in my sinful flesh by by getting angry. It's not that they were innocent in what they did. But they're not accountable for my anger. When my children sin, they will be held accountable by God for their sin. And I'm sorry, I'm I'm using my children generically kind of. I do have children, but I'm I'm not making them the object lesson. I'm speaking as if I were in all of your shoes, too. But they won't be held accountable for my anger. God does not tell my children, do not provoke your father to anger. What he does tell them to do is to obey and honor their father. But I, because of my position of authority, may be held accountable by God for their sinful anger. It just goes with the territory of authority. We can't have one without the accountability of the other. Likewise, my wife will never be held accountable for my anger. Though she is, of course, accountable for her own sin. But I, because of my position of headship and authority, may be held accountable for hers. The key here, then, is to recognize 
that authority, and this is really important, authority is not just something we, we hold in reserve to bring out and exercise on various different occasions. That's not how authority works. And so often when I'm looking at premarital counseling or something, we talk about headship and submission, and, and there's this picture of, well, headship and submission is just something that is it's a, it's the, it's the uh, last resort. It's like the break of the 50-50 stalemate, you know. And so pr- sometimes you've got to use headship and submission. In reality, that's, that's, a, that's, why, that's why we find headship and submission so irritating. Because that's how we see it. As fathers and also as mothers, and also as mothers, every single interaction that we ever have with our children, every single one, I'm not exaggerating, takes place within the context of a relationship of authority and subjection. Now let me explain that. That is not to say that commands are always being issued. Of course not. Hopefully they don't have to... That's, that's neither is that to say that directions and instructions are always being given. Of course not. Neither is this to say that as our sons and daughters grow older, there's not an increasing level of camaraderie and friendship and just that, that beautiful thing that happens. But as long as there's any authority at all, then the relationship itself okay, is experienced and lived in that context. Let me say it again, authority is not just something we have and bring out and use on various occasions. Authority is a position that defines the relationship. As long as there is authority, it's just there. And we don't have to go around insecure trying to make sure everyone knows it's there. It just is. To the extent, then, that this is not recognized and embraced by both the parents and sons and daughters, then the relationship between parents and sons and daughters is fundamentally and biblically dysfunctional. And dysfunctional is not too strong of a word here. On the other hand, it's the reality of this inherent nature of the relationship as one of authority and submission which makes us, and I'm going to speak again here to the fathers, which makes us capable of a sin which our children cannot commit. Or let me put it another way, and maybe this is even better. It's this inherent nature of the relationship as one of authority and submission, which gives to the sin which I have in common with all of my children, right? and which you have in common with all of your children. You have the same sins in common with them. But it's this nature, this relationship, which gives to your sin a uniquely destructive character. So when a husband or a father is sarcastic or 
or harsh or simply, I'll say simply, inconsiderate and insensitive or subtly self-righteous. Well, in that case, the wife or the son or the daughter is still called by God to be in subjection in the fear of Christ. In the fear of Christ. So, the Spirit calls you to that role regardless because you are a new creation capable of doing what before was impossible. So, if you are not doing the impossible, then you're in disobedience to God. If you're not in subjection, if you give way in your hearts to anger, then you will be held accountable. You will be held accountable for that sinful anger. But fathers, husbands, so will we. So will we. Authority brings with it not only greater accountability, not just greater accountability, but even a double accountability. And therefore, as James says to the teachers in James chapter 3, a stricter judgment. That's just, I mean, do we actually get that? If we really do, that should cause trembling. In, ch- in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul said, be angry and do not sin. So in other words, don't be angry longer than, don't let your anger be there for more than a day. Because you can't, you, can't, you can't manage righteous anger for more than 24 hours before your sin flesh just takes it and goes down a, a path of destruction. So to provoke our sons and daughters, oh, do not let the sun go gun on your provocation nor give place to the devil. So here's the reality. This is what's the stakes. To provoke our sons and daughters to anger is to provoke them to sin. And it's to provoke them to give place to the devil himself. It is to jeopardize their spiritual well-being. Principle of Jesus' words. This is why, this is why at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a human level, just at my own human level, this is why it's a scary thing to be a father. The principle of Jesus' words in Matthew 18 are a sobering thought to fathers and to mothers as well. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, in a lot of this message, I feel like I'm, I'm going to do a little bit more what we might call, well, the, I, I, I distinguish between teaching and counseling. I don't, like, I don't do much counseling in church. That's what I can do when we talk with you in person. This morning I'm going to change that a little and introduce more of what I would call counseling. Um, And so, again, that's where some of this goes. The point, then, is not that we walk around on eggshells as fathers and mothers. That's not the point. Neither is the point we practice child-centered parenting. The point here is this, and let's just bring it to the heart of of the matter. We do walk in love. We walk in love. And here, let's just qualify again. We're not talking about the parental filial love. We say, well, I'm doing this because I love you, you know, right? Or I love you. And, and well, yeah, I love you as their parent. And, and I just have this connection and attachment because they're my, chil- my children. But, but 
the true biblical Christian love is what we're talking about. The love that is only possible when it's enabled by the Holy Spirit. So parents, you cannot love your children unless you are daily being enabled by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can love your children with the other love, that's love that's instinctive, even without the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Non-Christian parents love their children. I'm talking about the other love. This is a love that means we'll always be working to be in our sons and daughters' shoes, to understand as best we can their feelings, where they're coming from, as those who are called all the while to obey and honor their parents. The point is not that we're ruled by the feelings and sensibilities of our children, of our sons and daughters, but rather that these things will always be before our minds as we obediently exercise our authority in the home before God. And remember, when I say exercise our authority, maybe that's communicating a wrong idea. As we simply are the authorities in the home before God. One of the best ways to avoid provoking our sons and daughters to anger, I believe, is just to go back to last week's message and meditate on that holy calling of our sons and daughters. Husbands, that holy calling of our wives. In case of our sons and daughters, to obey their parents in the Lord and be subject to their parents in the fear of Christ. Look at that holy calling. Our children are created in the image of God with personal accountability for their response to God's law and his provision of a savior. This is an accountability that carries eternal consequences and I ask you, how does that not impact our own attitudes and our own words and actions? Even our tone of voice, our facial expressions. You say, do I have to live with that paranoia? Well, if you want to call it paranoia, call it that. I don't care. But everything matters. And the exercise of our authority or the being of the authority in the home. You see the difference there. I'm not just talking about when you pull the authority out because it was in your bag. I'm talking about because you always just are. Our parental authority is not about us. It's about the glory of God in our sons and daughters. It's not about our right to be obeyed and honored. We have no such right. We have no such right in and of ourselves. It is about, though, God's holy law. So we don't require obedience because of who we are, but because of God's law the same law to which I am subject. And so we're responsible then to exercise our authority only as the expression of biblical, Christian, Holy Spirit-empowered love. And when we fail, as we will, is it not our obligation to acknowledge our sin, not only to God, but to our children? Is that not our obligation? I would suggest, and I'm, I'm putting myself on the whatever here, but if we've never asked forgiveness from our children for the, for the abuse of our place as a father and, and the authority in the home, 
Well, I'm not sure any of us are perfect. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, do not jeopardize the spiritual well-being of your children. But, he continues, bring them up in the training of the Lord. So, after all that, we might say, man, I don't, why did God give the authority? Is this just a liability? Is this just setting me up for failure? Of course not. God gave us authority to be something that we rejoice, that, 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 that we're so grateful he put us in that place. While authority does bring this greater responsibility and accountability, it's also given to you fathers as that which enables you to fulfill your calling as parents and what a wonderful calling it is. Our authority is the necessary context without which you cannot bring your sons and daughters up as God has called you to in the training of the Lord. Once again then, our authority is not about our right to be obeyed. I have no such right in myself. And so, the same principle, look at this, the same principle that warns me against provoking my children to anger because my authority is not about me and what is it for and and it also warns me against all forms of parenting that are in any way child-centered. Now, what does child-centered parenting mean? What does it look like? Well, maybe the best way to see that is to see what it's not. What's the antidote to it? One of the best ways to avoid child-centered parenting is for you to re- reflect and meditate on the holy calling of your sons and daughters to obey their parents. How is that child-centered parenting when we're called to obey someone else? How can life be centered around me? To obey their parents in the Lord, to be subject to their parents in the fear of Christ. So the Greek word for training that Paul uses here, it can have two, two different ideas. Discipline, as in, as in um, even corporal discipline, um, and, and also instruction. Hebrews chapter 12, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises. So discipline there, it could include the idea of chastisement or instruction or both. The emphasis here seems to be on the chastisement, the, that which is painful. And chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So a father is to bring up his children in the painful discipline of the Lord. Generally, this aspect of parenting is going to be especially important at the youngest and younger ages. So the temper tantrums, the grabbing, the unwillingness to share, and some of us are way beyond that, and oh, it's all gone, we can't even remember it, right? Um, that's how far away. But, but, I'm, but the, we're looking at a principle here. The stubbornness, those are all fruits of what? The sin nature. These are all violations, not of your law, dad and mom. This is not a violation of your law. Or really, even an affront to you. 
It is a violation of God's own holy law. Fathers, grasp that reality. That will guard you from provoking the anger. It will also guard you from child-centered parenting. So when a 10-month-old looks at his parent after being told no, and again, this is the counseling stuff. It's stuff I don't, I don't usually do here. But when a 10-month-old looks at his parent after being told no and then goes to grab the plug in the outlet anyway, the problem is not just the danger of an electrical shock. The problem is the violation of God's law. And what was the violation of God's law? Children obey your parents. Which we know it's hardwired into us from the time we're born. When we fail to discipline this disobedience, we are failing to uphold God's law. Sometimes we avoid it's wearying being parents, right? At some level, in many different ways. That's not to feel sorry for us, just because we're weak and it's a high calling. So sometimes we avoid setting boundaries in order to avoid the need for discipline. What we really end up doing, and I'm not saying we ought to invent all sorts of boundaries in order to teach sanctification, okay? It's a heart matter. Look always in your heart. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I not doing what I'm not doing? What we really, what we really end up doing is cultivating the self-centeredness that's inherent in the sin natures of our children that we have inherent in us. Sometimes we avoid requiring something of our children so we can minimize the possibility of disobedience, right? And minimize the possibility of conflict. Now, hold on a second. I'm going somewhere with that. I'm going to try to explain it. So with the younger ages, we reason. We sweet talk. We suggest. And we say, please. And so we teach our children that God is a God who reasons, sweet talks, suggests, and says, please. Am I saying we ought to be a tyrant and a dictator? No. With the older ages, we pick our battles. Now, let me clarify this. Because... As our children grow older, we give them freedom to choose in areas we would not have given that freedom when they were younger. And we give them that freedom even when we know very well they may choose in ways that we might wish they didn't. That's a part of parenting wisely. There is a difference between that and not requiring something simply because of my fear that my sons and daughters are going to fail to honor me and be in subjection to me in the fear of Christ. There's a difference. So certainly, as parents, we ought to, ought to be, well, I believe this, and that, so I'm going to always require it and not give the... No, no, we, 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 we ought to be wise. That's foolish. So children grow older, we recognize that choices must be made. We're sending them out, right? They're, they're making their own decisions, even when they make the ones that we might not think are the best. But, but at, the, at another level, that is not the same thing as saying, I'm not going to require this because I'm really afraid that they would not honor me in that. 
that is again the sign of really a problem in you, first of all, but in me, and me first of all, but then also in the, in the nature of the relationship itself. In the end, we must set boundaries. We must require obedience. Because why? Because we ourselves are subject to the law of God. And when these boundaries are rejected, when God's law of obedience is broken, why then, why do we discipline our sons and daughters? The answer the Bible gives is so that we might save them from death. Proverbs 22 says, Folly or sin is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod... You will save his soul from Sheol. Discipline then teaches our sons and daughters the reality of God's justice and righteousness in your handout. And so it is a picture of the discipline of our Heavenly Father. So, especially at the younger ages, when I when 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 we would discipline, my hope and my and, and in how and, and in the manner was that on the one hand that discipline would teach would teach the reality that sin is to be judged and that God is a just judge. On the other hand, I also wanted that discipline to picture the reality of the discipline of our loving Heavenly Father who disciplines us all for our good. So the author of Hebrews says, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. Discipline is not to get a behavior we want. Especially at the younger ages, discipline is for the sake of helping our children, ultimately um, um, cultivating that ground in them to grasp the more ultimate realities of God's law and their need for the gospel. Which is the ultimate reason God gave us authority. So we've heard a lot recently about gospel-centered parenting. We've heard a lot about gospel-centered everything. Grace-centered everything. That started out as a good thing and it kind of morphed into something that I'm not so sure about. But I like, I like the idea, the phrase. So let me just say this. True gospel and grace-centered parenting is parenting that faithfully and consistently portrays to our children the realities of God's law the law of obedience to parents being one of those laws. May then our discipline of our children always be motivated by love for our children and our desire for God to be glorified in them through their embrace of the gospel. May that, may that just be what drives us, right? And, and flavors everything. May our love then for our children always be the true biblical love that's faithful to discipline in the light of God's holy law.
But discipline isn't enough, especially as our children grow older. Discipline should be giving way. Now, we're always instructing, and not instructing, you know, I hope, I hope we're not instructing as like, we're instructing as learners. We're instructing as fellow sinners. We're also instructing as those who don't need to prove our authority, but have been put into the relationship as the authorities. It's just there. And so in that context, we get to teach and, and to instruct and, and to, to impart. So as they grow older, discipline should be giving way mainly to instruction. And in, I'm talking about discipline in its narrow way, right? Giving way mainly to instruction. Fathers, bring up your children in the training, which is the discipline and the instruction, has both ideas of the Lord. So fathers, again, I, I, I would address you as an, a fellow father. We bear the ultimate responsibility for the instruction of our children in the ways of God and the truths of his word. So there are many here who homeschool. And our, and our wives are our heroes. But they're not bearing the ultimate responsibility for the instruction of our children in the ways and the truths of God and his word. We don't have to be seminary trained theologians. We should be growing, though, and learning ourselves. I would just say there's a sense in, we can, in which we can sum up all of God's ways and truths that we need to impart to our children in two categories, law and gospel. Um, warning and or command and promise. So what does law do by itself? I know a lot of people, well, you, see, you see parents, and all of us as parents are, are prone to one of these two things. Uh, a lot of parents are just law. They, they emphasize law. And law by itself always kills it just will kill your children. Legalism will lead our sons and daughters either to pride and self-righteousness, which is an ugly thing, or to hopelessness and despair, or to anger and rebellion, or to all at the same time. What about the gospel by itself, right? Gospel-centered parenting. The problem with gospel-centered parenting is it's gospel with no room for law parenting. That's oftentimes what it ends up being. Well, that also kills. Because it's not actually the true gospel. Gospel without law, cheap grace, as one person put it, will lead our sons and daughters to empty professions and false assurance. And how many children of Christian parents, how many parents have encouraged their children in empty professions and false assurance? Prior to... And apart from the gospel, the law does bring guilt and condemnation. So it, it serves its role of pointing us and pointing our children to the gospel of Jesus Christ. After the gospel, the law then comes to be transformed for us. And now it's the expression of my love for God and, and a ground of, of a means of my assurance, my growing assurance. And so in all of our parenting, and I, I just meditate on this Pray to God to help you do this. May we hold these three things all together. Law, and then gospel, and then gospel law. And if that's what we mean by gospel-centered parenting, and I'm all for it, we'll be enabled to do this, fathers, 
and also mothers, as we're being constantly reminded of those same things, law, gospel, gospel law, in the context of our own walk with God. Moses said to all the fathers and to the mothers in Israel, but addressing in specific the fathers, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. But the key there I wanted us to see is they shall be on your heart. So the point is a lifestyle. It's the natural and the purposeful. Because we figured out by now we're never in a place where it's just constantly just overflowing from us, right? You know, it's purposeful. Overflow of our hearts. The more we are growing ourselves in knowledge and in faith, the more equipped we will be to fulfill our calling to bring up our sons and daughters in the instruction of the Lord. At the end of the day, however, we know that we cannot discipline or instruct our children into the kingdom of God. Let that, let that just sink in for a moment. Like, we can say it, and we're like, yeah, oh, no, I know that. Yep, that's, can't do that. But no, wait a minute. What does that mean? We cannot force them through discipline. We cannot convince them through instruction. So Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And I would just say it's this, admo- it's this admonishment that should permeate and accompany at, at a basic level. It's not like we're constantly, you know, I'm not, you don't, this is just, you pray about this, right? Um, th- this is not just idealism. This is something that, with God's grace, he can enable us to fulfill. It should accompany all of our discipline and instruction. To admonish is to urge, is to warn, is to exhort, is to advise or urge someone earnestly. I really like what this one guy says. He says, of the Greek word, its fundamental idea is the well-intentioned seriousness with which one would influence the mind and disposition of another by advice admonition, and warning. To admonish, then, I would say, is to recognize that we do not control the hearts of our children. We are responsible to enforce outward conformity to God's law. Some people say, I don't control their hearts, so how can I force outward conformity? Well, that's because that's your responsibility. Outward conformity to God's law, but we can't control their hearts. So, for example, I always felt like it was, there's a difference between having a child make some kind of restitution to someone that they have hurt and making them go say that they are sorry, if in fact they're not, because that's then obviously a lie. Um, We can't control their heart. But restitution is another matter. That can be a matter of outward conformity to the law, to God's law. We are responsible to enforce outward conformity to God's law, particularly the law of obedience to parents. But may our sons and daughters 
never think. May your sons and daughters never think. On the one hand, that you are only or even primarily concerned with their outward behavior. And on the other hand, may they never think that you would try to control or manipulate their hearts. Parents, I would suggest that probably every single one of us in this room have at one point or another attempted to manipulate the hearts of our children. Sometimes we lecture in an attempt to somehow coerce guilt or remorse in our children or any other matter of number of things. Sometimes we lecture in an attempt to make sure that they believe that we're right and, and actually have the same exact standard that I have on this. We cannot be the Holy Spirit for our children. And whenever we try this, there is no sure way in all the world to be guilty of the sin of provoking to anger. Here's the tension we live with as fathers. We cannot ever require from our children a changed heart. And yet, a changed heart and an always changing heart is the goal of all our parenting. The thing we cannot require is the only ultimate goal of everything that we do. It's the ultimate reason for the authority we've been given not to pull out of the bag when we need it, but to live in this relationship as the authority. And so, in humility, and with fear and trembling, and with, and with confident joy as we look to God, that's what I'm going to add in there. I knew I was missing something there. We discipline our sons and daughters according to God's holiness and justice. We instruct them in the law and in the gospel and in gospel law. And we urge and admonish them always to fear the Lord and to walk in his ways by faith. And we eat lunch together and, and, and go out on outings together and sit around and watch a movie together and we do all sorts of stuff together. And all of this is, is just there in the relationship. Okay. May God then give us grace. And I, I, I initially had the word faithful here, and maybe you were going to put faithful, but I scratched faithful. Because faithful sounds, oh, I like to be a faithful steward. No, may he give us grace to be obedient stewards. Because all of us, fathers included, are called to obedience. Obedient stewards of the authority he's given us as fathers, also as mothers. And may God graciously grant to all of our children, to every single one, as he has granted to us, repentance and faith and eternal life and joy in him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would, that you would enable us to embrace the truths of your word. Lord, let not any of us, fathers, mothers, children, um, Wives, husbands, let us not make excuses for ourselves because of our sin. Let us, let us not find a reason that, 
we're not called to this or that I can't be expected to live this. Let us rejoice in the reality of the gospel in our own lives. How it transforms us. How it makes us supernatural people. (laughs) Because we have not the natural, but the, the power of the Spirit dwelling within us. Let us see the ways that we are filled in the Spirit as with all of our hearts we apply ourselves to the living out of these principles, of these commands in your word. So Lord, as we, as I as a father and as we as fathers hear this command of your word to not provoke our children to anger, but to bring them up in the training and in and admonishment of the Lord. Enable us, I pray, to be obedient. To be aware of the ways that our sin impacts our, 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 our fulfilling of this calling. And Lord, I pray that, that, Lord, you would give us joy as we see you enabling us to be obedient. I pray for all the young fathers with still young children, with, for all the fathers with older and growing up children and children that are leaving the house and, and, and now also for, for, um, for those who will be fathers. And Lord, in, in all of this, may you be building your kingdom. May you be calling us to, to holiness, to, to, um, to trust. May our relationships be joy-filled. Lord, thank you that you have enabled this above all because of and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so thank you that we can now come as a sinful people who fail in, in many and multiple ways. We can come together, fathers, husbands, wives, daughters, sons, children, parents. We can come to this table all together equal before Christ, and eat and drink and be reminded of your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.